May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Perhaps the most famous poem in the English language. And I'm guessing, as soon as I said the word Humpty, in your mind, you are already racing ahead to Dumpty. You, how many of you, show hands, you knew that poem, and it was you, yeah, I know, that was there, wasn't it? Memories come back usually from childhood, hopefully for you, they were good memories. Um, a poem that most of us know from nursery rhyme days, earliest days. I have a friend, his name is Jerome, lives in Springfield where I grew up. He messes up every single nursery rhyme. He can never tell a nursery rhyme correctly. He has, you know, stuff like Charlie jumping over the candlestick and, and Jill and Clyde falling up the hill, holding on to a golden strand of hair. I'm like, no, you've confused like four different nursery rhymes all into one there. But I bet even Jerome Vincent knows Humpty Dumpty. In most of the nursery rhyme books that I've ever seen, Humpty is depicted as a personified egg. And maybe that's the image you had in your mind, even as I said, Humpty Dumpty. You went ahead and you not only were saying the poem in your mind, but you pictured that egg with that little face on it, and he's got arms and legs and, and probably like some sort of royal kind of uh, garb that he's wearing, sitting there atop a, a brick wall, perhaps. I don't know why Humpty had to be an egg. I mean, I suppose it's a little less shocking for children um, uh, you know, this fatal fall, or fall rather, is, uh, is not going to be um, so hard to take. Eggs get cracked all the time after all. But, you know, if it was a person, it might be uh, a little bit more disconcerting. But the poem, of course, is about this egg man, Humpty Dumpty, um, falling off of a wall and being irreparably cracked. It seems that all the king's men were summoned to help repair Humpty and yet were unsuccessful in their attempt. Likewise, were all the king's horses summoned to help put Humpty together again. And this line I have always found very curious. I mean, I can understand horses are good for a lot of things. They're good at pulling and transporting people. They're greatest companions, I think. Um, they're great subjects for sport, like racing or jumping or whatever. But I could never get my mind around the fact that horses were supposed to be um, uniquely skilled in surgically repairing cracked eggs. You know, it just doesn't seem like a horse's job. Um, but I guess um, at least they tried, right? Uh, they, they gave a, a good uh, yeoman's effort there. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. It's such a sad poem. I mean, as a casual observer, we want poor Humpty to be put back together again. I mean, no one wants Humpty to be harmed or hurt, you know. Uh, we wish perhaps there had been a pillow lying at the base of the wall so that when Humpty fell, he would have cushioned his fall and not been cracked at all. But there was no pillow. I do remember as a child thinking, well, at least they tried. You know, everybody, everybody gave it a great effort. But what if this poem isn't just a sad little child's poem, but what if it's a taunt? I mean, what if it's... Um, what if it's sort of a, 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 a you know, a, a taunting uh, a kind of uh, pejorative, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, as if maybe somebody told it with a little bit of glee in their voice. Ha ha, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You know, maybe the wall is sort of a, a poet's metaphor for someone who sat up high and always looked down on everybody with sort of a condescending, you know, a condescending look. 
what if Humpty Dumpty was sort of a, a character, a stand-in for somebody like some tyrannical jerk, a hated monarch? I mean, it would change the whole sentiment of the poem, wouldn't it? Humpty Dumpty had it coming to him, you know? And, and there's a little happiness that Humpty Dumpty fell off his wall and had a big old cracked head. Um, you may not be surprised to find that scholars have actually suggested this very thing, that Humpty Dumpty was a, um, a political taunting poem, sort of written as a children's uh, nursery rhyme, but really was a, a sort of a, a political uh, jab at uh, King Richard III by his Tudor supporters who were happy to see that Richard III was vanquished at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Um, Shakespeare, for instance, writes of Richard III, he, had, he was an ugl ugly hunchback who is rudely stamped, deformed, and unfinished. This is what, uh, what Shakespeare says. Sometimes people have a big comeuppance. Sometimes they have flaunted decency and moral order, um, kindness, and they get what they deserve. And maybe, maybe this is the story of Humpty Dumpty. He had it coming. And it's not a sad poem at all, but rather one of happy gloating over one who finally got what was coming to him. In a way, that's sort of the story of the prophets of Israel. The prophets of Israel, um, largely misunderstood. A lot of people think of the, of the prophets as this sort of esoteric material that's difficult to understand, and, and mostly what they're doing is predicting future uh, events in some kind of cryptic code that takes a special, uh, you know, kind of a device to, to uncrack. But that's not what the prophets are like at all. They're not fortune tellers. They're national figures who are preachers. They're like clergy without churches. They're sort of national chaplains who mostly preach about moral um, uh, conformity to God's moral law, about conformity to God's moral law, to keep the Ten Commandments. That it's Israel's job to maintain these commandments and to live by them as a part of their relationship with God. And they call this covenant faithfulness. The prophets preach, and that's what you should think of them as, as, as a company of preachers who span several hundred years as preachers in Israel saying, reminding the people to, uh, to main, maintain faithfulness to the Ten Commandments. Well, God will often raise up prophets, not when things are really going well, when people are doing what they're supposed to be doing, but usually in times of great national moral decline. And the prophets would come as preachers to speak to this moral decline. They would point out sin. And as you might well imagine, they weren't always well-liked. I think that prophets didn't get invited to many cocktail parties, you know. They're not the kind of people you wanted to hang out with on Saturday night um, because they were always sort of pointing the finger and preaching and saying, this is wrong, this shouldn't be done. Remember what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is what happens when prophets came around. And Ezekiel is a prophet. He's a prophet during one of Israel's darkest periods. Uh, the Babylonians have invaded uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, and they've invaded the city of Jerusalem, and they have laid it waste. They have, they have destroyed the walls around it. They have, uh, they have destroyed all the sort of uh, fortifications, the military strongholds, and then they even went and destroyed the temple, the sort of center of, of Jewish life and religion. They laid it to the ground burn it completely down, took all the gold and valuables out of it and stole it, put, took them back to, to Babylon with them. And then as a sort of final insult, they rounded up 10,000 citizens of the city of Jerusalem 
and they took him as exiles 500 miles away. Ezekiel was a prophet among those exiles. He gets the great privilege of going into exile with the people of Israel and preaching to them. If they didn't like preachers while they were living in Israel, while everything was sort of the way they wanted it, I imagine that Ezekiel was a particular thorn for them in exile. Ezekiel followed Jeremiah. For 40 years, Jeremiah had preached, if you don't turn, God is going to send a nation to destroy you. He, in fact, tells them the Babylonians are going to be the one. And they didn't turn. And now here it is, Ezekiel is in exile with the people of God. And he's God's spokesman in exile. I would urge you, if you have, uh, if you want an urge to read Ezekiel's prophecy, that you do so um, not immediately having eaten, uh, because he is a very um, graphic prophet. He speaks in some of the harshest language you could imagine. He actually says that Israel is like God's wife, and then that she is the kind of a wife that is unfaithful. But the language he uses is almost too strong for church. Well, in fact, it is. I'm not saying what he says, because it's so graphic. Um, you know, sometime in your leisurely reading, go and read chapters uh, 16 or 23 of Ezekiel's uh, prophecy, and you'll, um, you'll, you'll blush almost because of what he says. And his language, as, as strong and nearly um, vulgar as it is, is, is a reminder that God's people have not been faithful. They have turned their back on God, and they are getting exactly what they deserve. Which is why this passage in Ezekiel 37, is so odd. We don't get a lot of Ezekiel in the, in the lectionary for this reason. But this one we're going to get. Ezekiel 37, I think it catches even the prophet by surprise. Listen how it begins. Ezekiel 37, 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me, in the, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. The hand of the Lord is an is a image that, um, that the prophets use uh, of some uh, force that is, is holding on and compelling. I sort of imagine it like a police officer who, um, who puts somebody in cuffs and guides them to a car. You know, there's not a choice in where the person in cuffs is going, right? I mean, the, the officer has the heavy hand upon the shoulder and usually another one on the hands and, and they're directing them. To where they're going to go. Or like a bailiff in a courtroom. If you've ever seen a bailiff in a courtroom that, that takes a person to where they're going to sit. The bailiff doesn't say, where would you like to sit? You know, it's a nice room. <laughs> no, here's where you're going to go and you sit here. This is what Ezekiel says the Lord is doing to him. His hand is upon him. Uh, there's an Old Testament scholar. Well, he would call himself a, a, a scripture scholar. His name was Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, he's Jewish. He taught at Brandeis University. Here's what he says about this, about this uh, hand of the Lord. The hand of God, a synonym for the manifestation of his power and strength, is the name the prophet uses to describe the urgency, pressure, and compulsion by which he is stunned and overwhelmed. He goes on to say, the prophet very rarely speaks of God's face. He feels God's hand. God has a firm grip on Ezekiel. He takes him to a valley, and he shows him the scene of what must have been a major battle long ago. All these bones lying there. Probably Israel's army that had been destroyed. But it's been so long ago 
that all the bones are dry. They're like skeletal remains. Remember the movies where somebody's uh, going through a dark cave and they, they turn a corner and there's a skeleton right there and you jump and, and yeah, imagine that scene all over the place. Dried bones. And God speaks to the prophet and he says, can these, son of man, can these bones live? It's a good question, isn't it? Can these bones live? Come on. What would you say? I know what I would say. Um, I don't think so. Uh, Lord, this is not a place to start selling life insurance. You know, these people are done. They're gone. What does Ezekiel say? Oh, Lord God, you know. I don't know, but you know. Maybe this is a trick question. And so the Lord says, prophesy to these bones. Tell them to live. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, he says, and behold, rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. All of a sudden, as Ezekiel starts to preach, the bones start to rattle and come together, and tendons start to form, and muscle appears on the bones, And internal organs, perhaps. He doesn't say that, but I think that's what he means by flesh. And all of a sudden, skin covers them. And what was a valley of dry bones is now a valley of mannequins. They're put together. They're sort of healthy looking, but there's no life in them. And then he says to me, the Lord, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain and they that they may live. So I prophesied. As he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Ezekiel says, I don't know how this is happening, but God is going to bring this army back. This is a metaphor, isn't it? God is going to restore those who are dead to life. Remember, this is the prophet who said, Israel, you're like an unfaithful spouse. You're an unfaithful spouse who goes out with all sorts of other people. And God has divorced you. And now what's going on? He's going to restore? He's going to bring them back? This, this nation that has turned its back on God has a, has a hope? Has a future? Uh, two things, I think, uh, that apply this directly to us. I think the first one is, is that we should be careful about playing with idolatry. I know we don't do idolatry in the, in the Western world the way the ancient people did idolatry. You know, they had little, little statues, and they were like, um, you know, Baal, or they had um, uh, uh, Moloch or, or other types of gods that were little statues, and they worshipped them. And that doesn't really happen, not, not anymore. But they would also do this. They would worship these little gods, Moloch, Baal, whatever, and, and, and they would also worship Yahweh, Israel's god. They would try to do these both things together. In our world, we don't worship other gods, but we do have idolatry. I mean, there is materialism and a, and a pursuit of celebrity and power. And I think this one even worse, secularism. A sense in which we don't need a god, where we can live without God in the world, that we can just do our own thing. This is the way most of our world lives. It would call itself religious, Christian even. I imagine if you ask the, um, uh, you know, people in the country, like, uh, what religion are you? Um, the largest number of religion in our country would be a Christian of some sort. Um, 
a rising number. The, the fastest growing religion in the United States, though, do you know what it is? None. No religion. No sense of spirituality or need for God. I think playing with that sort of idolatry only brings about death. St. Paul says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The second thing is this. Uh, while we should not play with idolatry, while we should not entertain sin in our lives, um, sometimes we do. And sometimes we suffer because of that. Sometimes people get what they have coming to them. Sometimes we enjoy when people get what they have coming to them. We kind of feel like it's justice or something like that. It feels good. But sometimes we're that someone. Sometimes we get what's coming to us, and it's not so good and not so fun. What do we do when we've messed up really badly? What do we do when we've shut God out of our lives for a long time and and things begin to crumble all around us? What do we do when we feel crushed and overwhelmed by our own bad decisions? Ezekiel says there's hope. There's hope. Turn to God. Ask for help. Ask for restoration. This is what the psalmist said too. Do you you hear the psalm today? How's it begin? Out of the depths I cry to you, O God. A sense of being in a big pit. Out of the depths I cry. But in the end, I'll wait for the Lord. For the Lord will rescue those who call out to him. This is a sense of of hope. It's what the the gospel had today too. You have the, the death of Lazarus. And God brings life out of death. I remember um, as a child hearing the, po- the Humpty Dumpty poem and feeling like it was such a sad poem. Poor Humpty, you know, that, that he needed mended. I don't remember planning Humpty's funeral or anything like that, but I, I do remember that it was just kind of sad. And um, I, I, I kind of imagined poor Humpty all cracked laying there and, and, and all the king's horses and all the king's men, you know, just kind of looking down at him and, and this pathetic uh, uh, re- realization that he'll never be uncracked again. This morning I was making eggs and I, I, I had one egg left in the, in, the, um, in the egg container and I'm walking towards the refrigerator and I dropped it. And I thought, well, the chances the egg didn't crack, you know, and I open it up and I look inside and of course it's destroyed. Um, I couldn't uncrack it. Humpty Dumpty couldn't be uncracked. When I later learned that it might be a a triumphant kind of gloating poem, I don't like it any better then, do you? That somebody is taunting someone else who's gotten punished because they deserved it. When someone gets what they deserve, it's still sad. It would have been nice if Humpty Dumpty had said, Hey, fellas, how about a ladder, you know? Could somebody help me get down from here? And in humility, came down from his lofty position. If we had done that, then we'd have to rewrite the whole poem, and that would mess everything up. Or it would make everything better. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.